Blyth, Village Life Welcome to Blyth. Founded as a village named Drummond in 1855, the community was ultimately named after British land speculator Henry Blyth, an absentee landlord who never set foot in the village. Since then, a steady stream of colorful characters has made Blyth their home, creating the quirky village it is today. To begin the tour, make your way to the southwest corner of King Street and Queen Street. Most recently a gas bar, this property was once the Blythe Jail. The jail was a small white brick building with two cells for prisoners. This is where we meet our first characters. One day, the people of Blythe were shocked to see the village's first police constable, Jim Davis, marching down Queen Street in his seldom-worn police uniform, revolver drawn and trained on a clean-shaven but otherwise bedraggled prisoner. Constable Davis received a phone call warning him of a desperado who had been run out of Wingham and was heading south toward Blythe. The policeman hastily put on his uniform, strapped on his gun, and made for the north end of the village to meet trouble head-on. He soon spied the criminal, ordered him to halt, arrested him at gunpoint, and marched him through the village toward the jail. After entering the jail with the prisoner, Davis struggled to open a large rusty old padlock securing one of the cells. This proved to be an awkward process, with one of the constable's hands occupied holding his revolver. He handed the gun to the prisoner, but even using two hands, Davis could not open the padlock. Suddenly, the prisoner spoke his first words since being arrested. Jim, why don't you let me help unlock that damned thing? The constable instantly knew the voice. Davis gaped at his clean-shaven prisoner and finally recognized the man whose face had been covered with a full beard for many years. It was his best friend. Jim knew he had been taken. That morning, his pal had decided to shave off his whiskers. When he saw himself in the mirror, a devious plan formed in his mind. He walked north to the end of the village got permission from a family there to use their telephone. Disguising his voice, he called his old friend Constable Davis and pretended to be the police chief from Wingham. The result was a prank for the ages, and fortunately the jokester did not get shot in the process. Now cross to the northwest corner of the intersection and note the two-story brick building. Originally, this was a livery a stable where horses and wagons were for hire and privately owned horses could be boarded for a short time. It was purchased in the year 1900 by Dr. John Perdue, a prominent veterinarian and fervent lover of animals big and small. Doc Perdue became famous in the area after he delivered a two-headed calf. Doc Perdue bought or rescued abandoned baby wild animals, including a wild cat and a black bear cub. He raised these wild animals to maturity and they became curiosities in the village. The dock entertained people by having wrestling matches with Bruin, his full-size black bear. One local legend suggests that after drinking too much at a local saloon, Doc Perdue was cut off. Indignant, the veterinarian fetched his bobcat on a leash and threatened to let it loose in the saloon unless he was served more drinks. The bartender kept serving Doc Perdue. The Doc also owned racehorses that regularly won at tracks in the area. In 1899, 
the federal government appointed him the Dominion Veterinary Inspector for Southern Ontario. Whenever there was an outbreak of disease among livestock, Doc Purdue was sent to investigate. It was his job to order the quarantine or destruction of livestock to prevent the spread of the disease. He also assessed the quality of horses for the Canadian forces serving in the Boer War. Doc Purdue continued his veterinary practice until August 1940 when he suffered a paralytic stroke. When he died the next year, he was lamented by the local newspaper as a venerable and highly esteemed veterinary surgeon who had practiced animal medicine for 60 years. Walk north up Queen to Dinsley while listening to the next part. Queen Street, as the main street of the village, served as the focal point of big community events. Following the Boer War, a parade was held to honor Archie McQuarrie, a man from Blythe who distinguished himself in battle. 1,200 people lined the parade route. In 1911, a parade to celebrate the coronation of King George V was held as a banner overhead proclaimed, God Save the King. Drum and bugle bands marched down Queen Street to mark the opening of the Blythe Fall Fair. After the World War I armistice, people crowded the streets to celebrate and gathered outside the Blythe Inn to hear a victory speech delivered from the hotel's balcony. Immediately after World War II's VE Day to mark the end of the war with Germany and Italy, a group of Blythe businessmen ran down Queen Street pulling a decrepit old horse buggy containing effigies of the two defeated European dictators, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. Hitler was wearing an old black two-piece suit, white shirt, and dark necktie. His head was made from a plaster of Paris ball with crudely formed features, a very gray complexion, and black hair painted on his head and of course with a familiar small cropped mustache. Hitler was dwarfed by a gigantic Mussolini, whose body was made from a huge bran bag stuffed with crumpled newsprint, topped by a pumpkin head with roughly painted features. After a couple of brief speeches, gasoline was poured on the vehicle and the effigies. A lit torch was pitched from a safe distance, igniting the buggy and its occupants. A large crowd stood looking on and cheered loudly. A few minutes later, all that was left on the street were a few metal parts that survived the fire. Saturday nights, almost every rural family in the area flocked to the village for the major shopping spree of the week. Stores up and down Queen and Dinsley were open for business until 11 o'clock at night or even later for many decades ending in the late 1940s. Are you at Dinsley yet? The building on the northwest corner of Queen and Dinsley was known as Industry Hall. For a few years beginning in 1910, it was the home of the Blythe Standard Weekly newspaper. Albert Robinson, who went by Shorty, was an employee of the newspaper and eventually purchased it using an inheritance. On his watch, the newspapers were often illegible. One advertisement for a car company showed a large black blob in the middle, which was supposedly a picture of the latest model. Shorty had acquired the back issues of the newspaper when he bought the business. Unfortunately, he chose to use the back issues as fire starters. By the time the mid-1930s arrived, few of the back issues remained. A local businessman, Mr. Elliot, finally took over as publisher of the paper to save it from ruin. 
He subsequently sold it to an experienced journalist and publisher, Ken Whitmore. Today, an almost complete historical collection of Blythe standard issues are available from 1938 onward, but only scattered issues survive from the late 1800s through to the 1930s. The second floor of Industry Hall was once used as a concert hall. In 1896, Pauline Johnson, a First Nations poet and performer, presented a show there to a full house. Johnson was one of the most notable entertainers in North America at the time. She performed for part of the evening in her traditional Mohawk garb, and the rest of the evening in Victorian clothing. Look to the northeast corner of the street. On the northeast corner of the intersection sits the Blythin, affectionately known locally as the Boot. This property has been devoted to providing accommodations for over a century and a half. Early settler Robert Drummond built a log home on the site and offered lodging to travelers and other settlers arriving in the village. In 1854, the commercial hotel was built on this site. In 1906, Jonathan Emai tore down the previous structure and built the present hotel. Emai was a key member of the community. He launched the village's first fire brigade and served as the first fire chief in the village. The cement blocks used in the construction of Emai's hotel were made using a machine invented by Blythe resident George McNall. Several buildings in the village have the same cement blocks serving as their foundations or comprising their walls. McNall was employed by the Public Works Department and was part of the fire brigade. He would go on to serve in both world wars. In World War I, he was a scout who carried out dangerous missions behind enemy lines. He was awarded the rarely granted Military Medal of Conspicuous Gallantry and Devotion to Duty. At age 45, he enlisted again, serving as a dispatch rider in World War II. He rode a motorcycle from the rear to the front lines carrying urgent messages. Walk north on Queen Street to the northeast corner of Queen and Drummond Street. This is now a variety store, but in the early days of the village, it was a true rural general store with an extraordinary range of services. The store sold 100-pound bags of sugar, flour, salt, chicken feed, pig feed, cattle feed, and oats for horses. They also offered a large cold storage section in which customers could rent lockers to keep large quantities of meat. Take a walk west on Drummond Street and take a look at some of the old homes in Blythe while you listen to the end of the tour. These are all private homes now, so we won't give any specifics. But these back streets of Blythe can give you an idea of how homes used to be built when these characters were alive. Lorna Bray was a trailblazer for women in aviation. Canada's original fly girl, at the age of 14, Bray made her first solo flight. At 16, she had her private pilot's license and became the first woman in Canada to complete a parachute jump. By the age of 20, she had her commercial pilot's license. Her career took her all over the world, from supply runs to mines in northern Manitoba, to working as a flight instructor in New Zealand. Bray became a member of the Order of Ontario, the Order of Canada, was inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame, and the Women in Aviation International Hall of Fame. When she died in 2009, the Globe and Mail newspaper wrote that she was influential in gaining acceptance of women in all aspects of aviation. 
She looked back fondly on her days growing up in Blythe. She said, I am glad I was born in a small, friendly, and generous village, where the rules for small children were understood and gently enforced by caring members of our community. As this audio tour was being created, a stage play about Bray's life was slated for production by Blythe Festival in the summer of 2020. That concludes the Village Life Tour. Some of the quirky characters mentioned here, Lorna Bray, Doc Perdue, George McNall, and Henry Blythe, the absent landlord, have inspired the names of beers from the local brewery Cowbell at the south end of town. Stop in if you need some refreshment. However, if you are keen to hear more about local history, consider starting the Blythe Greenway Trail Tour or the Blythe Festival Tour.